And today, uh, Pastor Kevin is going to take us through the next passage, which will be Matthew 20. And today we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 28. So if you have your Bible or your your device open, um, follow along while, while I read Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Well, going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we, as we begin to open your word today, God, would you be present? As present as if we were, we were gathered together in the same room, would you be present even though we're, we're united only through, uh, through the internet? God, your word is strong, it's powerful to save, and, and, and would, you, would you speak to us today? God, as, as it does every week, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law? Father, be with Pastor Kevin as he, as he speaks to us. Would your words flow powerfully and mightily through him today as he, as he teaches your word? And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this is interesting. Um, raise your hand if this is your first live stream. See, I can't even, I know you laughed because it was great. Uh, first live stream, I think for all of us probably, um, as a church family, assuredly. As I started getting ready for the sermon this week, I knew it was going to be a little crazier than normal, uh, as usually is the case when you add preaching onto other responsibilities. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the week got started. There were sort of some unexpected counseling things that came up, but, you know, it, no big deal. There's still time. I know how it's all going to play out. I'll still have time. We'll be all good. All good. And then, of course, Wednesday and Thursday roll around. It was, you know, coronavirus this, coronavirus that. And all of a sudden, there were a lot more pressing matters. Will the church be able to meet? Uh, will there even be a sermon? Uh, what, what community leaders do we need to talk to? What communications need to happen? What do our leaders need to be aware of? <clears throat> but what I am doing is important, I thought to myself. 
But of course, the wheat never straightened out. You see, I, I had in mind, in my own mind, how I thought things were going to work out, how everything was supposed to go in the little kingdom that is mine. And there comes a point when it's very clear that the whole thing is, <clears throat> is different than what I thought, that everything is upside down. And the Lord uses these upside down moments to show us here is reality. You thought it was one way. You thought you were more important, that you were the hero. But the Lord tells us a different story, a, a, a true reality. And I think that's what's happening with the apostles in the Gospel of Matthew. They've been along for the ride with Jesus for nearly 20 chapters now. And Jesus has been doing straight up crazy stuff, right? Powerful stuff. Speaking to storms, multiplying food, raising the dead. And he's talking about his kingdom. And they're going, this guy's kingdom is going to be amazing. I mean, I mean, really, whoever gets on the ground level of a new kingdom, right? You, you, maybe a new startup business, but a new kingdom... Uh, they've got to be going, I, I, I've never thought of myself as a person of power, but, but now I'm with Jesus. My life's getting more interesting. My prospects are, are trending upward. I'm rubbing shoulders with a superhero, with a Messiah King, the Son of God. And we're going to get to start ruling with this guy? And just as their heads are, are getting bigger and their grand ambitions are, are starting to kind of take center stage, Jesus starts to teach them about the upside down kingdom. That he's actually starting. Remember their, remember their questions. They, they say, Jesus, who, who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's, it's us, right? Is, is it me? Is it me? And so he grabs a child and says, this little child is great. Whoever humbles himself like a child, that one is great. And then Peter says, Lord, you said it's, it's tough for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But look at us. We sold everything to follow you. What, what treasures will we get in the kingdom? And Jesus answers, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Not only that, but Jesus proceeds, as we looked last week, to tell a story where a landowner hires workers and he offers a generous wage. And throughout the day, he brings in more and more workers. And at the end of the day, he pays everyone the same. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine, Jesus says? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And the disciples have to be going, wait, we're the guys. We're the ones who've been working all day. They're offended. And I guess I would say to us, does this, does this offend you? When grace levels the field, are you offended? Do, do deathbed confessions offend your sensibilities? Is this sort of thing hard to believe? What, what about the restoration of prodigals? Like deep down when you're honest, does it bother you? When you see someone who messed up big time, but yet they get forgiveness, the same forgiveness that you got. Or better yet, is it hard to even see them experience joy? This was Jesus' question. Are you jealous because I'm generous? And the apostles are going, yeah, we're important, right? We're special. You called us. We have big ambition. God has called us to do a mighty thing, right? And we are the first ones. Aren't we going to have our names on the billboard? Won't we have the corner offices? Don't we have the treasured seat? Better yet, a throne in your kingdom. And so suddenly these men who have followed Jesus are asking, this coming kingdom is getting flipped upside down and inside out. And they're going, what kind of kingdom is this? Where the last will be first and the first last. So what is Jesus now going to say about the kingdom? This morning, I think he's going to have us see three things about his kingdom. First thing, the first thing is this. 
Number one, this reign of his kingdom won't start how you'd think. In verse 17, we see this. While, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way. Now, before we, before we get to what he said, remember, they're walking into Jerusalem. So this is like, this is like Michael Jordan on the way in, walking into the arena for his first NBA Finals. Everyone knows this is the scene of future glory. The king is on his way. Never mind, he just told the crowd the first shall be last because here we are. We're actually, it's, it's time. So much for this first will be last stuff. We're rolling into Jerusalem. The king is coming. And so he pulls aside the 12 and, and privately, they have to be going, okay, Jesus, tell us, lay it on us. What's the coronation going to be like? And so Jesus tells him, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. So here it is. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. What are you even saying? This is, this is Jesus' third prediction of his death, right? So it's, it's, it's also the most graphic, like the most obvious, like a play-by-play almost. We're, we're going to Jerusalem, He's saying, I'm going to be handed to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. Mocking, flogging, crucifixion, and then three days later, resurrection. This has to be the clearest example of Jesus looking his 12 guys in the face and telling him, here's what's going to happen to me. You guys are interested in who's the greatest in the new kingdom? What rewards you're going to get? Let me tell you what I'm going to get. And imagine the weight of these sentences on Jesus' lips, right? These are his 12 closest friends. He's looking them in the face. Knowing full well what's about to, that they're not going to grasp it. And he's saying, the very people that I came to save, they aren't just going to reject my message. They're going to reject me. And they aren't just going to label me a heretic or put me in prison. They're going to hand me over to the most powerful ruling force in the known world. So I might be tortured, spit upon, and killed in the most gruesome way known to man. And oh yeah, on the third day I'll be raised. One of the most laughably frustrating things in the New Testament, I think, in the whole Bible maybe, is seeing how clearly Jesus talks about his own impending death and resurrection. And yet the Gospel of Luke tells us in this very account, Luke says, and they understood none of these things. None of these things. How do we know they don't get it? We know they don't get it because they clearly didn't think it would happen. Remember when Mary Magdalene and the other women go to, the, to Jesus' tomb on the third day and they see the angel who says, Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And they run back and they tell the disciples, he's alive. We've seen it. How do these, the remaining 11, so Judas is out of the picture now, how do those remaining 11 respond? Luke in his gospel says this, but these words seemed like nonsense to them and they did not believe the women. No, nope, don't believe it. What? This is exactly what he said would happen. This is the guy you saw raise dead people, heal the blind, tell the storms to stop. He's inventing fish and bread out of thin air. And oh yeah, he also said, I'll be crucified and rise again. And their response, no, no way, not possible. Thomas was the same way. He's not unique in his doubts. But still, he doesn't respond with, with yes, this is what he said. I remember. This is what we waited for. So we're going to see soon that they didn't get it, obviously. But we didn't have to wait to see if they would get it. We can see how they respond right here. And here's where we see the next lesson of the kingdom is number two. Greatness in the kingdom isn't what you think. So Jesus delivers this tough message. 
And then in verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. Now, I, I, I've, I've never been a school teacher where I had to deal with overbearing parents, but I have coached a lot of Little League Baseball, and I've watched a lot of American Idol. So I think that puts, gives me a little bit of a platform to speak from. And I know that in nearly every circumstance, even with my own kids, I can feel this. The person named mom, or often dad, is not the person who has the proper perspective the, the most objective view on their son or daughter. But let's imagine the scene. Jesus has pulled these, these 12 aside, told them what's going to happen to him. You got it, guys? Yeah, we got it. Conversation ends. James and John go back to mom, right? And here comes mommy with James and John, who I like to imagine are walking kind of sheepishly uh, behind her. And she kneels down, not, not to comfort Jesus, who just spoke of his death. And he looks at her and he says, what do you want? He asked her. He, he knows where this is headed. And so she says this. It says, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. This is a genius helicopter mom move, right? Um, my, my boy said some tough stuff's coming, but you're still going to be a king. We all know that. So just promise they're going to reign with you in the kingdom. I mean, she, she's missed how the kingdom's going to start, right? Um, Earlier in the chapter, so the disciples had been feeling, feeling superior, but now they're seeking superiority. There's two massive things at play here, pride and ambition. Now remember these guys are young, like, like under 20 young. And, and Frederick Bruner in, in his commentary says, It's been observed that the typical temptation of the young is lust, of the middle-aged ambition, and of the elderly bitterness. Actually, all three drives are similar and related Ambition is a refined lust. Bitterness, a disappointed one. And in addition, ambition is a drive that, like sexual desire, precisely because it's not wholly evil, is so difficult to tame. So we, we kind of struggle knowing what to do with ambition, don't we? It can be so insidious. Why? Because it's, it's, it's really hard to see. And it's, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between selfless service for God's glory and seeming selfless service for my own glory. And this is where we just say, Lord, help us. I remember clearly feeling this in myself. In, in the early days of Redeemer, I remember um, Ed and Kitty White, who, who had already in the first couple of years become such a treasured part of our church, uh, just as they continue to be today. And I remember bumping into Ed on Father's Day on a Sunday morning. And I wished him Happy Father's Day. And I could see in his eye, he was, it, was, it was not as happy. It was a sad day for him. Um, is all his three kids and the grandkids were they were spread out across the United States. So when Amy and I got home from church that day, we thought we should make cookies for Ed. You know, we'll, we'll take him over to Ed and Kitty's house and just to let Ed know we love him. Uh, the Lord loves him. He's a great dad. His kids love him, uh, even if they aren't here today. And, and it was great. It was a blessing. It was a blessing to them. It was a blessing to us. But, but I remember thinking afterwards, was there, some, was there any part of what we just did there that was selfish? It was still good. We love Ed and Kitty. We did that to honor them. Uh, or so that they, but, but the question became in my mind, did, did I do that to honor them? Or, or was any part of that so that they would just appreciate me more? So they would, they would think more highly of me? Do we feel like the sort of ambition that plagued the, the apostles is beyond us now? Surely the zeal of James and John began uh, with purity, with sincerity. But before long, they wanted more than simply the purity of Christ's kingdom. 
the purity of, of what he was going to bring and the blessings that would come from him. Now, I, I need a piece of the action, a bit of the glory. Maybe it was even worse than that. Maybe, you know, maybe when you ask to sit at the right hand of a king, a king with no children, maybe, you, maybe just maybe you're kind of asking in a backdoor sort of way to one day be king. And, and if this can happen to James and John, who are we to think our motives are exempt from the possibility? Who are we to say, how could my desires ever be tainted? Calvin has a great comment about this interaction. He says, the story is, is a clear mirror of human vanity. It teaches that ambition is often entwined in a, a right and godly zeal. It is not enough for a mind to be sincerely directed to Christ in the beginning, but it must keep on always in the same path of purity. For often depraved thoughts and feelings come over us in the middle of the race and turn us off course. I think I would suggest that the Lord's telling us, maybe we should be more regularly asking, whose glory am I seeking in this even seemingly holy pursuit? When was the last time someone questioned your ambition, your desire? When was the last time you said to yourself or maybe to your spouse, you know, maybe I don't need that promotion. My ego wants it. But I know that it'll take me away too much. It'll remove our ability to serve our neighbors or to be around for the children. Or maybe I don't, I don't be, need to be up front in this arena. Maybe, maybe what I think in this moment is not what is important. And these questions get even trickier. As one of your pastors, I feel like almost, <clears throat> I feel like probably knowing my own heart, uh, one of the last ones that should be teaching this. Pride is always nipping at, at my heels. Even when I think of, that my motives began in purity. A pastor friend of mine named Vic Green wrote an article this week about ambition where he talked about the struggle of Christians, particularly Christians who really want to glorify God by serving his people. And he asks this question that, that, really, that really stung me. And I'm kind of putting it in my own words. He says this. He says, if all your ambitions for ministry and mission came true, would you be okay with someone else getting the credit? These are... These are Probing questions, right? Jesus didn't avoid these hard questions with his disciples. So let's, let's not avoid his now. His teaching is correcting us, warning us, talking us down from the ledge of sinful pride and ambition, which can, which will destroy us. So think about what just happened here. The Zebedee brothers were super close to Jesus. Their ambition is kind of bubbling. And it's not just theirs. It's their mom's too. I mean, what, is, what does every mom want for her boys, for her children? Greatness, right? What do you want for your children? To be the best? To lead? To be successful? To excel? Of course you want these things. But Jesus undercuts even a mom's desire, even your desire as a parent for your own children, and he lays the groundwork for true greatness. Who knows what, what their motivation is here, or even hers? Could they be trying to one-up Peter or, or claim for more power? Sure, uh, the, that's very possible. Is it an ultimate power play? Or is it just simply a desire to serve alongside Jesus? I don't know. But this, this mother brings her desires to Jesus. And like her, we bring our requests to Jesus. But even in our requests, he is no genie granting wishes. He will redirect our selfishness, our selfish requests. And he, and he won't fulfill our wishes of grandeur for our glory. And so that's what he does here with them in verse 22. Jesus answers and says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
He's saying, you don't even know what being at my right hand will look like. In just a few short days, who's going to be at the right and at the left of Jesus? There's going to be men on either side of him. And they won't be ruling. They will be dying on their own crosses. But look at the answer from the brothers. They say, we are able, they said to him. We got it, Jesus. Such confidence. part, Part of me really wants Jesus to be, to just burst out laughing here. I suppose he could also be furious. After all, he just told them he was going to die, and this is what they ask. But Jesus knows they really have no chance to follow him. What do all the disciples do when he dies? They hide, all of them. However, with his resurrection power, what will they do? They will follow him. They will proclaim him to the world, and they will drink the cup. Isn't this us? Completely unable to follow Jesus where he has called us, and yet by his Spirit, completely empowered to do it. Verse 23, he told them, You'll indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And they will. They will be hated like Jesus. They will be rejected like him. They will follow in Jesus' path of suffering. In Acts 12, we see the martyrdom of James. And we don't believe, church history doesn't teach that John was martyred, but he did suffer. He was exiled on the island of Patmos. And generations of Christ followers will come after them, suffering both physical pain and death, while others are isolated and cast out. Verse 24 says, When the disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Partly, I kind of like to see this as kind of a faux outrage. Like, well, how could you? You guys are totally selfish. Not like us, Jesus. You hear that? We're not like them. We would never ask that question. Which is laughable because just the last couple chapters, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. These guys weren't indignant that James and John sought to be the right-hand men of Jesus. They were mad that James and John were looking for the upper hand over them. They're basically arguing over who's the greatest again. And and Jesus looks at his boys and he's going, you guys are obsessed. You're fixated on how to be great, how to be the best, how to have the most power, even over your friends, how to get that seat of honor. So yeah, James and John look bad here, but they all look bad. None of them are interested in sitting in the backseat. Everyone wants shotgun in the kingdom. Wicked ambition has seized all of them. And so Jesus just addresses all of them, not just the brothers. Jesus called them over and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So Jesus is teaching now. He may have been frustrated with the question, but now he's longing for them, like his own sons, to understand. Parents, you know this conversation. He's speaking in in gentler words here. He, He wants them to hear. And he's speaking gently to us too. You know the kind of power play authority out in the world? The kind that crushes the weak, that wields authority as a footstool for self-exaltation? In verse 26, Jesus says, it must not be like that among you. Redeemer, hear him say that. It shouldn't be like that with us. And then he says, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Imagine Jesus with the most earnest tone saying, you've seen these Roman rulers with their servants that follow them around, answering every demand. You don't like that kind of authority when you see it. None of us like that kind of authority when we see it. It's offensive. 
And Jesus is saying, this is not what my church, not what my people are to be like. This authority of power, of of self-promotion, has no business amongst God's people. We cannot give allegiance to the king while angling for the throne ourselves. So do you want to be great? Of course you want to be great. We all want to be great. Jesus doesn't even seem to be correcting the general desire for greatness. But just as he told the rich young ruler, there's only one who is good. He's now saying there's only one way to greatness. You must serve. If you're in a group of people and you want to be great, you want to be a leader, serve those people. This is that word diakonos, the same word we get for deacon, someone who waits on tables. Ambition screams, step over people. Service says, put others' needs before your own. The world says, fulfillment is being served, having servants. Jesus says, there's only fulfillment in serving. You want to know the fancy, the fancy theological word for this? is Humility. And then we all go, oh, man, this is a sermon on humility. The world is going to preach a gospel to us of self-greatness, survival of the fittest. Be the best you. See what you want and go get it. And Jesus says the only way to greatness is to lay the pursuit of greatness down, to see the honor that you want and give it away to others. Husbands, do you serve your wife? Are you humble in your home? Or do you seek to rule as a king? Jesus says to us, I believe, the husbands of this this world rule in this way. It must not be like that with you. Employers, managers, do you serve your employees? Are you humble in the workplace? Or do you command your direct reports as a ruler? Jesus says the employers of this world rule in this way. It must not be like this with you. Church, do you serve your neighbors? Are your eyes and your calendar open to those around you? Or do you only proclaim truth, considering your time too valuable to care for the needs around you? Jesus says, the neighbors of the world are this way. It must not be like this with you. Ah, but how can I be a leader without calling the shots? How can I be a boss and never command? How can I be a parent and only serve? The answer is simple and yet oh so difficult. Who is at the center of your thinking? In your home, in your workplace. Whose joy is your aim? Is it anyone other than you? With coronavirus this week, have we been more eager to stock our shelves, like Pastor Jeff was talking about at the beginning, than to think about an elderly neighbor who may be afraid of going to the store? Or or what about food pantries? Guess who's not donating to food pantries this week? Grocery stores, because they don't have anything left to donate. So while we stock up, who will we stop to serve? In a broader context, what is the place of our church in the city? Are we here to demand resources? To receive, to, to, to demand that we get respectful treatment and recognition by the city? Or have we been saved not to be served, but to serve? What about your church leaders, as your elders, your pastors, If we lead as those who demand respect and allegiance, as those who bark orders, as those who seek honor and wield our authority as a weapon, this is heresy. This is a heresy of practice. No, your pastors, your elders, we are to serve. By God's grace, we think often of the sheep. 
In humble service, when we are serving as the way God would have us, we are to point you to the firm and yet kind greatness of the King of Kings. The shepherd king who laid down his life for the sheep and not point to ourselves. Many of you have seen abuses within your home or within church leadership, wrongful uses of power, heavy-handed authority, and for some it's made you aware, it's made you wary of even the purpose of authority of leaders. It's caused many to say, how can marriage be good when leadership is so badly abused? How can church governance be a good thing when it's wielded so poorly? And for this I just say, I'm sorry. Uh, to be clear, we don't our, your pastors, your elders here, we don't do it perfectly either. But Jesus calls each of us, your pastors included, do you want to be great? Be a servant of all. And I hope we hear this and go, just like they did the last chapter, what hope is there? How can I actually do this? The hope in this upside down kingdom of God is our last point. The third point, the king of the kingdom is greater than you could ever imagine. And in verse 28, Jesus says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has poked holes in the discipleships, in the disciples and in our facade of self-righteousness. And he's pointed us to the beautiful Christian ethic of service and self-sacrifice. He's called us to a better way to live in humility, serving each other. But if this is all Jesus did, just showed us how selfless we are, and then tells us to start serving people. Is there hope in this? They asked this question in the last chapter. Is anyone actually able to enter the kingdom? And Jesus is telling them, serve like me, like the God-man who did not come throwing the weight of his greatness around. But guess what? Unless you have first been served by the God-man, you can't do it. You won't do it. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the first statement, as far as I'm aware, in the New Testament where we see something said about the meaning of Jesus' coming death. And who's saying it? Jesus himself. And Jesus didn't simply show us how to serve, how to be humble. He served us. Because our lives were captive to the destructive power of sin and death, incapable of serving, only capable of selfishness. And yet, as he served you, he paid your price, my price, that we might be free. And now you, you may serve as you rest in his work for you. Now I, I may seek to give my life to others as Jesus did. By his mercy, I've been set free from selfishness and vanity, thinking only of myself. And I've been free for a holy ambition to make much of Jesus. This is Jesus, both our model and our means, that he has forgiven us. As he's forgiven us, we forgive. As he has served us, we serve. So we can't talk about the humility of Jesus without ending with Philippians 2. So we're just going to end it there. This is how Jesus served us. You can flip over in your Bible if you want to, or I'll just read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. This is what we see about Jesus and about how he served us. Verse 6 says this. Christ Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. Notice who exalts him. God the Father highly exalted him 
and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For whose glory? The Father's glory. Church, the King of the kingdom is greater than you could ever imagine. And so, church, if this is what Christ has done for you, look at verse 2. If you've been served by Christ, if you felt his humble love, then, then here you go. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Let's close together in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you that we have been served so kindly, so perfectly by our God and our King, Jesus. And would you help us now because of of and out of the overflow of the way that you have served us and forgiven us, would you help us to serve our neighbors? Would you help us to care this week for those who are scared? Would you help us to, to think of others Think of those that you have given us charge over. Think of the ones that you have placed sovereignly around us that we might serve them in such a way as to say to them, there is a greater king, greater than me, greater than any of us. There is one who is the king and we are the sheep of his flock. So let's look to our king this week. Let's follow our good shepherd and let's serve those around us this week. Help us, Lord. We need you in Christ's name. Amen.